Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. I'm coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. For the next two hours, I will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Sputnik International reports Moscow slams Kiev's shelling of Zafarova nuclear power plant as act of nuclear terrorism. Ivan Nechayev, deputy director of the information and press department of the Russian foreign ministry, has warned of catastrophic consequences from Kiev's shelling of the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant. For insight into this, we turn to our first guest. He's a Moscow-based international relations and security analyst, Mark Sloboda. As always, Mark, welcome back. Dr. Leon, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the Critical Hour. Quote, over the past few days, Ukrainian forces have shelled the territory of the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant several times, which is an act of nuclear terrorism. Such actions by the Kyiv regime can lead to a catastrophe on a scale much greater than the consequences of the accident at the Chernobyl plant in 86. Quote, end quote. One, Mark, this shelling is ongoing, whereas a lot of people here thought it was just one incident, but this has been an ongoing process. And two, with it being ongoing, to me, it shouldn't be that difficult to determine who's actually responsible for it. And again, here, the narrative still continues to be both sides are blaming each other. Can you speak to both of those points, please? Yeah, I mean, that's the way the Western media has dealt with the shelling of Donbass for the last eight years, right? The Kiev regime is shelling, right, their their own cities in the east as an attempt to extend its control over the entire country. But and shells fall all over the people of East Ukraine. But we don't know. Maybe they're shelling themselves. I mean, that's 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 the way the Western media has has told the story uh, continuously. And this is no different. So, I mean, uh, the Russian story is quite clear. Uh, they've been in control of this plant for several months uh, on a on a military political basis. It has to be said that the Ukrainian staff are still running the place, right? You know, all the workers are still doing what they're supposed to do. That's no different. And it has to be said that they're still supplying power to Kiev regime-controlled territory in Ukraine, uh, which seems remarkably beneficent to me, considering the, that uh, the Kiev regime forces are shelling the plant. The Kiev regime story is a little more complicated. Um, according to them, Russians are occupying the plant and they are using it to store weapons and fire from, knowing that the Kiev regime uh, can't fire back. But the Russians are also shelling themselves in the plant. Um, Those crazy Russians, boy. I, yeah. Um, <laughs> so I don't think anyone really seriously buys 
the story. Mm -hmm. I don't think the, the press does. I don't think any Western governments do. It's just something they go along with and they don't argue with uh, against uh, or do they don't specifically say, yeah, that's what's happening. They say, well, it's unclear, but Russia should hand, you know, political military control of the plan back to the Kiev regime. And for that matter, I mean, the U.S. Uh, and its allies should hand control of the Syrian oil fields and wheat fields that it's still militarily occupying uh, back to the Syrian government. But neither one of those things is likely to happen any time in the near future. Um, it seems that the Kiev regime is largely doing this out of, of kind of like a, a childlike tantrums, desperate cry for attention. They are afraid that Western interest and thus money and weapon flow to their regime is failing. Uh, so they have to get their attention in some way. And a potential nuclear catastrophe affecting Europe is one such way. Thus far, they haven't managed to do any serious damage. They've knocked down a few power lines, um, which reduced power to citizens in their own controlled territory um, uh, for power uh, until those power lines were, uh, you know, uh, fixed. Uh, so also when they're shelling the plant, the, the ones most in danger are Ukrainians who are running the plant, you know, the, the, mm -hmm. the, the support staff, the operators, the maintenance people. So it doesn't show a whole lot of regard for them. But what has been the primary area where they seem to have been concentrating is adjacent buildings where spent nuclear fuel, used nuclear fuel is kept. If they hit that and they actually manage to penetrate it uh, in a significant matter, it could, in effect, create kind of like a, a makeshift dirty bomb mm -hmm. uh, type, type effect. Um, but, I mean, I guess – for the attention that it is generating a scorched nuclear earth policy is something that the Kiev regime is willing to to, uh, you know, uh, handle. However, um, this plant was actually built to last. Right. This is the largest nuclear power plant in Europe. It was built with, uh, you know, and reconstructed with with Chernobyl in mind. Um, and the reactors are designed to protect against natural disasters like earthquakes and up to an airplane slamming directly into the containment building. Right. I mean, that's mm -hmm. um, and this isn't according to me. You don't have to trust me on this. Trust Mark Wenman, a nuclear plant expert at London's Imperial College. And according to him, I do not believe there would be a high probability of a breach of the containment building, even if it was accidentally, quote unquote, struck by an explosive shell. And even less likely, the reactor itself could be damaged by stuff. He added that the spent fuel is also stored in very robust steel and concrete containers that are specifically designed to withstand very high energy impacts. So while there is still potential for damage, right, mm -hmm. that something could go tragically, catastrophically wrong, uh, you know, an unprobable strike in just the right way. That said, you should never fire artillery uh, <laughs> at a nuclear power plant. Let's, let's just say there. Previously in the conflict, the Kiev regime accused Russia of shelling the Chernobyl nuclear power plant, which at the time they were also occupying. Uh, but that was has since been completely debunked. 
right? And this is a very similar story. It's a desperate cry for attention. And again, attempting to draw the entirety of the international community or more particularly NATO into this conflict by we'll try to create a nuclear disaster to affect you all if you don't come in and fight Russia for us kind of situation. If Europe is willing to go along with that, well, you know, that's their call. But it does seem that the um, plant was is rather robust. And unless they managed several direct hits with multiple ballistic missiles, uh, chances of such a catastrophe are thankfully slim. Reuters has a story, Denmark, to train Ukrainian soldiers in UK, according to the Danish government. They'll send military instructors to Britain to help train Ukrainian soldiers and also offer to train Ukrainian soldiers on its soil. What does it signal? Because there really seems to be a shift. There, there are countries such as Denmark and Sweden that post-World War II were incredibly neutral and anti-nuclear, anti-military, but now that seems to be shifting and you've got Denmark, you've got Sweden now entering into the into the fray. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, in from a political standpoint, this is showing unity of NATO and how uh, unified they all are here. In reality, a hundred and some uh, trainers is is not a, a a significant change right so the united kingdom announced a few months ago already that they were going to train 10,000 ukrainian soldiers up every 4 months now first of all when uh, ukraine has previously reported 1000 casualties a day right so that's not even 10 days worth um so it at it, it, trained over four months. But then the details began to emerge. And actually, what the U- they're not training 10,000 soldiers for four months, which would be a basic uh, military training. It would be a boot camp mm-hmm. to, designed to create a basic infantry, you know, the very bare minimum. They're actually training 2,400 soldiers every three weeks. <laughs> which is what they're doing. They're giving civilians who have never fired a gun before, many of them conscripts, three weeks of training. This is not preparing them for mm-hmm. combat. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, uh, in effect, putting a sign that says cannon fodder and draping it around their shoulders. Fatten, it is fattening frogs for snakes. Uh, it is. As we discussed yesterday. <laughs> yes, we discussed yesterday. Uh, they they are indeed rather tragic frogs. Uh, that is a good description of them. Am I over reading this? I looked not necessarily at the practical or tactical aspects of it. Yeah. I looked at the fact that now you've got countries that historically have sworn neutrality to now taking more aggressive postures. And so am I reading more into that than I should? Yeah, I mean, okay. yeah, Denmark for decades has been very, very close to the U.S. In fact, the Danish military intelligence has been helping the U.S. spy on the United Kingdom, right? Well, I didn't realize that. Stories okay. that have come out over the last few months. The Danish are 
really one of the most gung-ho pro-U.S. hegemony countries in Europe, at least of their government. Their government is. has been, right. And, okay. and that has long been the case. So, um, I mean, it is, again, showing political unity and that they're doing okay. something. But as a military person, I also have to take a look at the practical right. uh, sure. realities of it. And it's not doing much. And I'm a political scientist, so I look at the political aspect of it. Um, now, this one really got my attention. And some may say, Wilmer, once again, you're looking at stuff that doesn't matter. Russia's mere banking card could start working in Cuba by the end of the year. The first stage of work on the introduction of the Russian payment system has been completed in the Republic, according to the Cuban ambassador to Moscow. Again, when, to me, when you start engaging in banking, you're sending incredibly powerful messages. Your thoughts, Mark Sloboda. Okay, I think this is somewhat more significant. I okay. mean, not just Cuba, but that said, a lot of Russians like vac vacationing in Cuba. Americans haven't been able to go because of their own, uh, you know, blockade policy mm -hmm. against Cuba for decades. But Russians regularly go to vacation for Cuba and the beaches are quite nice. Um, so um, that is uh, an added convenience for Russians there. But it just adds to a list of countries that are now taking the mirror card. That includes Turkey, mm -hmm. a NATO member, Vietnam, Armenia, Uzbekistan, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, basically the whole collective security treaty organization and a few other close countries. Also, South Ossetia and Abkhazia, you know, uh, which, of course, the West doesn't even consider independent countries. Uh, but others are, are queuing up for this. Egypt is another one. A lot of Russians go on vacation to Egypt and Egypt has close relations. And this is important because Russia has been cut off from SWIFT mm -hmm. by the West mm -hmm. for their control of the global financial and economic uh, architecture the system. So Russia is creating an alternative parallel system, and they have offered the use of this system um, uh, and cooperation with the Chinese equivalent at the recent BRICS uh, um, summit. Um, and that received uh, quite some positive attention now that everyone see what could be done to them. And I think we are, again, with with BRICS, but, you know, also this specific item of the mirror payment system, we are seeing the beginning of an alternate, alternate mm -hmm. global financial and economic system emerging out of BRICS and, and out of uh, Russia's own initiatives as part of that. Mark Sloboda, as always, Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis and look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, and there's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We're back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. The Hill reports pro-Trump backlash to FBI search fuels concern over political violence. The stunning and unprecedented FBI search of former President Trump's Florida residence this week has inspired a fierce backlash on the right, fueling concern among experts about the escalating risk of political violence. 
What are we to make of all of this? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a diverse communications professional. He has a background in leading communications departments, being a communications professor, as well as a TV news correspondent for numerous networks domestically and internationally, Dr. Colin Campbell. As always, welcome back. Thank you. Good to be here. So the response among Trump supporters to the FBI search Donald Trump's residence has sparked sharp criticism over the Justice Department's tactics to outright incendiary rhetoric with Trump himself comparing the search of his home to the Nixon-era burglary of the Watergate complex, quote, everyone was asked to leave the premises. They wanted to be alone without any witnesses to see what they were doing, taking, or hopefully not planting. Colin Campbell, your thoughts? Yeah, I think there's a lot there. I mean, just in that one statement, there's a lot to dissect where he compares it to Watergate and how things are so bad for him um, because of what happened, uh, FBI and federal agents showing up to his home. He's going to exacerbate it or highlight it as much as possible to win the sympathy of his supporters. At the same time, we look at just exactly what happened there and just how dangerous it was and whether or not it was warranted. In a way, some of this phrasing was a setup to what we can anticipate as far as the narrative coming from the former president himself, where he alluded to the fact that possibly evidence could have been planted there. Uh, we have already heard that being echoed by lawmakers such as Rand Paul out of Kentucky, I believe, and he's already talked about how there could have been evidence planted in the former president's home in, in Mar-a-Lago. So now we're starting to hear that there might have been corruption just going into this uh, altogether. And of course, that's why you have the attorney general who's going to talk about the, the raid uh, uh, later on today. In fact, we're probably just minutes away, and he may have already started talking about it as we record this broadcast right now, uh, talking about what what uh, prompted the raid, what they expect from it, and maybe there are going to be limitations on what he talks about. I'm sure he doesn't want to expound upon it too much because that just opens him up even more to media asking him questions. But for the Attorney General and the Department of Justice to talk about these issues, all of that is, is very rarely done. So we can understand the magnitude of what happens here uh, when you have a former president whose home is being raided by federal agents and computers are being checked, and then the Department of Justice uh, speaking about it later on. Now, from what we're to understand, the president did violate the Presidential Records Act, and so there are certain things that the president is supposed to leave behind in the White House after he leaves the office because that's just part of policy that is has been uh, etched in stone, basically, that there are certain letters, there could be clothing, artifacts that should be left behind for presidential records. And after prompting, the president still did not return some of these artifacts back to the White House or back to the, the keepers of, this, of these artifacts. And so from what it sounds like, federal agents took at least 15 boxes of material from the president's house that he refused to relinquish at the appropriate time, and so that's part of it. What that does is it sets up for uh, uh, to look at whether or not the president followed 
policy. And if he didn't, and he was willingly violating that policy, this could preclude him from being president of the United States in the future. And of course, he's using that to say this is part of a political plot to prevent him from ever becoming president again. So you have the narrative coming from the former president himself, saying that he is a victim in all of this, and as part of a plot to stifle any future political or any future major political ambitions. And then you have the Department of Justice, which uh, hasn't come out clearly just yet, but has alluded to the fact that the president was in violation of something that he was obligated to do, and they had to follow up uh, to show that this does have serious consequences, if not uh, if not encouraged and, and if not provided uh, with all of the information that they were supposed to be provided with. So here's here's what I understand. And so this, folks, is my opinion. I am not I am not citing this as fact. But Colin, to your point, the Records Act require first, first of all, what people need to understand is that letters, correspondence, documents, gifts, none of those things belong to the president. They belong to the American people. And when the president leaves office, most of those things are supposed to remain behind. So when the president travels internationally and another head of state gives him or her a gift, that's not personal. And those things are things that the president, are they're not supposed to keep. So I don't know... What are the items in question? But from all that I've heard, the concern has been top secret documents not being properly maintained. And Mar Largo is not a secure facility. It is a private residence and it is a golf club. People come and go. They have parties all the time. So it is possible that someone with nefarious intent could make their way into Mar Largo and jeopardize some of this confidential information. The Justice Department wants it back. As I understand it, they have been trying to negotiate with the president to get the stuff back. And finally, they said, enough of this. We're going to get it. That's how that's. My very simplistic understanding of this. And now, history is replete with illegal tactics used by the FBI, from COINTELPRO to lying on FISA warrant applications. We know that. I don't know that this event takes us into that realm. It, it may very well. Was there political timing behind the, uh, the raid? I don't know. But what I find very interesting, and Colin, this is what I'd like for you to speak to, the hypocrisy of some of his now staunchest supporters. Little Marco Rubio, back in 2016, stood by his description of Donald Trump as a con artist. In 2015, Lindsey Graham called Trump a race-baiting, xenophobic, religious bigot. You know how you make America great again? He said, tell Donald Trump to go to hell. 
Graham said on CNN's Newsday, he doesn't represent my party. He doesn't represent the values that the men and women who wear the uniform are fighting for. This is Lindsey Graham. He's the ISIL man of the year. Then you got Lion Ted Cruz, according to Donald Trump. That's the moniker that Trump put on him. Lion Ted Cruz, who mocked uh, a Trump mocked Cruz's wife's appearance. I think he called her ugly. And then he suggested that Ted Cruz's dad was involved in the assassination of John Kennedy. Cruz called Trump a sniveling coward, a pathological liar, and utterly amoral. Now, all of these people and others are now rallying to the defense of Donald Trump. Help me understand, Colin, what happened to change the person of Donald Trump from being utterly amoral, a pathological liar, and a religious, race-baiting, xenophobic bigot to being this bastion of virtue that they all must now come to the defense of. Help me out. There's a lot of layers to that. And one <laughs> of them is still in Trump's appeal. You know, he still has a lot of followers out there, right? We have to remember that there's still tens of millions of people who voted for him in the last election. He still has a lot of fervent supporters, some of whom were outside of his Mar-a-Lago residence uh, protesting the raid. Uh, we do know that there have been uh, investigations for people threatening the FBI. I believe that it was in the state of Ohio where somebody had uh, tried to breach the, the one of the federal buildings um, in Cincinnati uh, outside of the FBI mm-hmm. um, right after the raid. So there, there's a lot of there's still a lot of support for the former president, and that would include the lawmakers who are now defending him. They came out during. The- oh, wait, McCollin. If I come on the air and say, Dr. Colin Campbell is utterly amoral, he's a pathological liar, he's a religious xenophobic bigot, and then the next week I have you back on the show, folks are going to scratch their heads saying, wait a minute, I thought thought that dude wasn't too cool. Why is Wilmer now bringing him back on the show? Right, and that those are for discerning people who would say that. But we're looking at okay. what the underlying reasons is of for that motivation to now dismiss what they had originally thought of Trump, and that is the appeal that they want to still be a, a viable part of the Republican Party. They still want to be considered. They still want support. And for those supporters that still support Trump, they believe that they could also provide wind in their sails for whatever their continued political aspirations exist or for whatever support that they want. If they started to malign Trump and stick to what they had originally started with a few years ago, they would start to see a cleave within their own support. And I don't think they want that. I think that they know that a lot of their policies could be questioned. A lot of their motivations could be questioned. And so they already bought into the the, the, the ethos of Trump, and so now they want to stick with that because they believe that's what their supporters will ultimately resonate with and still provide and, and still how they mm-hmm. provide them with continued support. Again, we, have, we still have to remember that Trump is still extremely popular with Republicans. So any Republican that stands out against him, that you know, brings up some of his malfeasance, brings up his hypocrisy, brings up some of his uh, perceived incompetence, they will be isolated. We could look at, at uh, Liz Cheney, for example, right? And, and, um, 
and Adam Kinzinger on the committee, on the January 6th committee, mm-hmm. how much, how, how would the backlash that they have received? Their political uh, futures are in serious jeopardy, both of them, because of the stand that they took sure. against the former president. And I don't think that a lot of lawmakers, Republican lawmakers, want to go through that type of ostracization that Cheney and Kinzinger are going through right now. For me, all that does is cloud what the Republican Party claims to stand for, particularly these individuals, Lil Marco and Lion Ted Cruz, and uh, because now, based on what they have said, it's not Donald Trump that's the standalone pathological liar. It's Ted Cruz. It's Lil Marco. It's Lindsey Graham. Because either either you were lying when you said it, when you saw Donald Trump as the clown that he was in the early part of the campaign, and you were trying to dismiss him based on the descriptions that they gave, you were either lying then or you're lying now. Because you can't be you can't be right in both instances. So I clearly get your point. Uh, moving on. Now you have this whole issue being escalated to individuals issuing threats against the FBI. And now Christopher Wray, who was appointed as the director of the FBI by Donald Trump in 2017, is now having to come out and call threats circulating online against federal agents and the Justice Department as being deplorable and dangerous. Wray says... I'm always concerned about threats to law enforcement. Violence against law enforcement is not the answer, no matter who you're upset with. And again, I go back to history is replete with the duplicitous nature of the FBI and the acts, many of them against organizations of color representing the civil rights. And then again, the FBI agents lying on uh, affidavits for FISA warrants, but your thoughts now in terms of how this is escalating to people coming out on social media and threatening the FBI. It has become very real. I mean, earlier today you had a man that was dressed up in body armor ready to do some damage. He breached a security screening at that office that I alluded to before in mm-hmm. Cincinnati, Ohio. And there was a gunfire. There was, stand, there was a standoff with, that included gunfire. And then he was chased onto a nearby interstate, uh, still exchanging gunfire. So this has become a, a very disturbing reality where you have people not only making threats online, but actually trying to take action on some of these threats that ha- like ha- what happened in Cincinnati, Ohio. And this can just show a, a, a huge decline in the respect and the care that the public have for that the public has for law enforcement, and also just the seeming um, dismissal or negligence by some lawmakers to really dissuade and discourage this type of antagonistic behavior towards law enforcement. Now they have these words for those in maybe the middle class or lower socioeconomic classes when they might be over-policed in, our, in a lot of black communities. There's a, there are a lot of harsh words for respect for authorities and, you know, the police are right and just do what they say and not try, don't flaunt the law, obviously, and, and always have that kind of respect. But when it comes to situations like this that seemingly 
are interrogating the malfeasance of the former president, or even some of them as lawmakers, now they are victimized by law enforcement. And now the law, and law enforcement officials are corrupt, and we should be against law enforcement. It's a very uh, schizophrenic way of looking at the way that we are supposed to treat, respect, and uh, and consider our law enforcement officials. And we can tell that sometimes it depends on the class or the race of the people who are being considered within that paradigm itself. That is concerning, too. But if we do have a decline in the way that uh, federal officials are thought of, a lot of people are going to question every motivation that they make. And that can also lead to further problems down the road. And let me read quickly from this is uh, the Star Advisor newspaper in Cincinnati. An armed man decked out in body armor tried to breach a security screening area at an FBI field office in Ohio today, then fled and exchanged gunfire in a standoff with law enforcement. The confrontation at the FBI Cincinnati field office comes as officials warn of an increase in threats against federal agents in the days following a search of former Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida. It'll be interesting to see, uh, Dr. Campbell, what Donald Trump's response is to this latest development, because I'm sure he will do everything in his power to disassociate himself with people who are uh, listening to him, reading his tweets, and, and then taking him up on the very things that he proposes, you know, saying to some effect, hey, I didn't tell him to do that. That had nothing to do with me. Let me get to another, quickly, another issue. Biden approval rating jumps to its highest level in two months in Reuters Ipsos poll. Biden's approval rating rose to its highest level yesterday. It rose to 40 percent up from 38, while his disapproval rating fell to 55 percent. Because now we're hearing a lot of narrative about the most successful legislative agenda. Biden is now all of a sudden, you know, Mr. Legislation and getting all these things passed. Do you think, A, with the things that the Biden administration has been able to pass, and then B, with the outrage that people are feeling and the threats that people are feeling from the Supreme Court decision on Roe v. Wade, how will this uh, portend for the Democrats in the midterms? I still think that Democrats have some concerns, really, to worry about it in respect to the midterms. Really, we have to remember a lot of the issues and how people vote Come down, comes down to pocketbook issues, kitchen table issues. If they're still able to pay their bills, if they're feeling economically uncomfortable, of course Roe versus Wade is going to be a big decision. I think that a lot of voters also know that this is not really the president himself that made this change. It's really the Supreme Court, so their fight is really with the Supreme Court rather than the White House. You do find a sympathetic tone coming from the White House about the reversal of the decision coming from the president and the vice president. So. But to that point, Biden promised on the campaign trail that he was going to get Congress to codify it. And the Democrats failed to do that. And many will say they failed to do it because they found Roe to be more of a campaign advantage in its current state than to try to get the problem solved through legislation. And so a lot of folks are angry at the Democrats for controlling the House, the Senate, and the executive branch and not getting this thing codified. 
Oh, most definitely. And that's, again, why there should be concern for Democrats in the fall, because they're not just Will versus Wade, but building back better. There lots, there's lots of legislation right. that hasn't passed with a democratically controlled uh, government. Um, but, yes, these recent wins have given Biden a bump. But we do recognize that although his approval rating has gone up, it's still a 55 percent disapproval. Rating. Correct. And from what I know in my map. 55 is still the majority when you're looking at a hundred percentile. Well said, Dr. Colin Campbell. Obviously, uh, the statistics classes that you took to get your Ph.D. were well served. Thank you. <laughs> hey, man, really appreciate it. Uh, you stepped in big for me. Really, really appreciate it. Look forward to having you back real soon. Looking forward to it. Thanks, man. Hey, folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. Haiti Liberté has a piece entitled End to Negotiation Illusions. During a press conference given on last Tuesday, the protagonists of the Montana Accord finally threw in the towel. They have no doubt finally realized the de facto prime minister, Ariel Henry, and his team of the popular Democratic sector branch, Andre Michel and Marjorie Michel and Richard Pierre, will not share the cake of power with them as the spokesperson so aptly pointed out. What's going on in Haiti as the struggle for sovereignty and democracy continues? For insight, let's turn to my next guest. She's an associate professor of black studies and anthropology at the University of California, Los Angeles. She's a member of the Black Alliance for Peace and an editor of the Black Agenda Review segment of the Black Agenda Report. Dr. Jamima Pierre is always welcome back. I'm happy to be here. So help us understand this whole negotiation. What's being negotiated and who are the primary parties involved? Right. And at this point, it's actually not even clear what's being negotiated, except that um, it's become, you know, it's it, what we've come to understand is that Haiti has no doesn't have sovereignty in the core group still runs things. But I have to say that the Montana Accord is, you know, came up uh, in, during the September 11, 2021, uh, 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 an accord to find a way to bring um, uh, Haitian civil society um, in the discussion of governing Haiti, at, especially after the assassination of um, Jovenel Moise. Um, in July 2021. And so it was a group of, you know, a bunch of civil society um, sectors um, from center to left and really radical progressive groups. They all came together at the, it's called Montana, it's because they came together, together at the Montana Hotel in Haiti to really come up with a plan. And they had this real plan on, you know, on how the people would work together to move this forward. Now, at the same time, you have Ariel Hori, who's unelected, who's criminally um, implicated in the assassination of, 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 of Jovenel Moïse, but who also was put in place by the international, so-called international community, and that's the White West, right, and the core group. 
having his own accord, which is exactly what the U.S. and the West want. Um, and so for the longest time, the Montana Accord is like, we, um, we, will, we have a set, a plan. We want to have a two-year transition where we'll have like a, an interim president. Um, and then we can have elections, get the country ready. From the very beginning, Ariel Henry was against the Montana Accord. And, and the Montana Accord kept pushing. And then what ends up happening is that as time goes by and the U.S. still supports Henri, Henri is recalcitrant and refuses to deal with them. He, uh, they finally submit and they wanted to meet with him because they knew that he was the one that had the power, which actually led to a lot of people breaking from the Montana court because they're saying there should be no negotiations with this unelected and complete puppet of the U.S. government. So they started losing members of that accord, more of the leftist governments, the, uh, more of the leftist uh, organizations like the Lavalas movement. And then you have um, um, grassroots groups like Molagov left the movement, left the accord. And they were still trying to um, negotiate. And, and Henri just completely would pretend to talk to them and then step back. Um, and even lately, he made a, a statement at the one-year anniversary of, of, his, uh, of the, his being put in place by the U.S., talking about, you know, not all negotiations will work. And so I think, and, and, and people were very uh, distrustful of the Montana folks because, they were saying, well, they're like the, and I said this on your show before, that they're the bourgeois opposition. You know, there are these people who want positions and so on. So the Montana court was not perfect. It wasn't great, but at the same time, and I think their mistake was thinking that they could negotiate and that the international community would actually allow um, some kind of sovereign movement from, ha from Haitians themselves. And I think they realized this um, at this press conference and they finally threw in the towel which means then that the strength of Henry, that Henri's power has strengthened mm. and, and, the, and, 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 and the U.S. has consolidated its power um, um, over Haiti. There's another piece in this article. It's the whole political class that has failed. Let the politicians of Montana and those of Musau who cannot agree in their policy of fighting the people stop their cynical game and let the oppressed masses with their progressive organizations take care of the destinies of the nation. And that's exactly it. Because part of the problem was the Montana Accord was made up of a bunch of bourgeois politicians who were struggling for power. It became a power struggle, even though they were more legitimate than Henri, who was put in place by the core group in the U.S. government. And so it became that. And once they started, once the Montana group started negotiating with Henri, all bets were off because people were saying, well, they're giving up on the masses to try and claim some kind of power for themselves. And so, and, you know, as, as in everything in Haiti, the only thing that will change the situation is a popular uprising. And, and that's what we say. We need another revolution. Haiti has been under foreign control since 2004. Um, um, and, and, and Haiti has had this, this, corrupt right-wing government put in place since 2010 and and you know and the or the organization of american states the core group they've all been part of that including the u.n security council and so so and then you know i don't know if you've seen this but the the organization of american states put out a report this this week basically claiming that the international community is um is partly responsible for the problem in haiti um, and, and but at the same time, basically advocating intervention. And I think that's what we also the, your listeners have to uh, think about. In the past two weeks, there have been article after article 
asking for Western intervention in Haiti, as if the West is not in Haiti mm, and right. controlling Haiti. So the Washington Post, for example, just recently, just a few days ago, said there needs to be a robust intervention in Haiti, international intervention in Haiti, because the, the, the narrative is that these Negroes cannot take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. They cannot rule themselves, and they're, you know, they're a mess. And so now that the Montana court has folded, what it does is opens up the space for Henri to call for an international intervention, because that's what they want. They want to bring back the military. They want to bring back foreign military to keep that in place. So you said what is needed now is a revolution. Yes. And are the grassroots entities coordinated enough to have a revolution? And here's why I asked that question. Gil Scott Heron says the action in the street that you see is not the revolution. The revolution is when you change your mind. The revolution is when you change the way you look at things. And so the action in the street is a reflection of that change of mind. So a lot of people think that, oh, everybody floods into the street, they raise hell, and then out of that comes change. No, the change came on the front end, and the action is a result of that mindset. So that's the basis of my question. Are the grassroots groups able to coordinate amongst themselves so that as a result of that revolution, they are able to control the things that they are looking to control? Hopefully that makes sense. Right. It makes sense, but at the same time, I have to, I have to push back a little bit. The masses know what's happening. The people know who the enemy is. I have to remind you, um, um, the, read, um, the listeners, that remember, from 2018 to 2021, there were massive protests in Haiti. Right. Remember, there were millions in the street. Mm -hmm. That revolution already happened in the mind. The people know this. Okay. And, 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 the, and the leaders know this as well, right? Because, which is why- they And that's what they're the afraid of. With guns. Right. Which is why they flooded the country with guns, and you have these young men who can barely eat walking around with machine guns, right, mm -hmm. terrorizing the population because they know that the masses know what's going on and the masses have added up to their necks with, the, with, with U.S. And, and Western imperialism. Okay. And so I do think, so I, I, think, I think the resolution in the mind is there it's, and, and, the, and, and it's, being, it's being pushed back be by hunger, right? But also by, by the reality that you have these heavily armed young men um, armed by the West and the elite um, to keep them, keep, to, 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 to hold them Got back. It. But I, I think that's only, it's only a matter of time, though, for people to get back into the street. Because at some point, you know, what's death if you can't live, <laughs> you know, and if you can't survive? What you're describing reminds me a lot of the Iranian revolution when all these Iranians come in the street and the Shah imposes a curfew and the people ignore the curfew and Washington calls the Shah and says, hey, man, you got to get control of your country. And he tells uh, the United States, send me a helicopter. This is over. <laughs> exactly. I can't. He said, and, and not a shot was fired. He looked out in the street and realized he had lost control of his army and he had lost control of the people. And he told Washington, get me out of here. I'm done. And they flew him out. 
So it sounds to me as though, and and I think my question is still valid. You're just telling me it's further along than I than I was assuming that this could very well be a situation where Henri winds up looking in the street in the midst of the unrest and says, I'm done. Right. And which is why the, the, the White West, the core group, they're doing everything in their power to keep Haiti in a state of complete chaos and to present this PR. Because like, that's, what it, that's what it is, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, gangs, so-called gangs in the streets, shooting people, you know, this crazy PR, everybody's salivating at the prospect of covering the Haitian gang violence in Haiti, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And not really talking about why it is that there are guns being brought into the country all the time. Why is it that the core group supports Henri, which we know supports some of the gangs? And so we want, you know, so they know it's coming. They know it's only a matter of time, which is why they're trying to suppress the people. But I, I do think, you know, it's been, you know, Haitians have been fighting for 217 years. And mm-hmm. so and so they're going to continue fighting. And it's only so much that this, this people, these people can take um, before mm-hmm. um, the U.S. can't con- con- contain it. And I have to, and I, and I predict this, no matter how much the U.S. tries, they're not going to keep, they're not going to keep the Haitian people down. It might look bad right now, mm-hmm. but I trust that they will, they, they will come in and, and push out only and, and the Westerners. Let me move to another story in Haiti Liberté, and I hope I pronounce his name correctly, Samir Handal, wanted in Moise assassination, still being held in Turkey. A Turkish court ordered Haitian businessman Samir Handal to be released from almost eight months in detention. The judge found that the Haitian government presented insufficient evidence to justify his extradition back to Haiti. Now, Turkey has still not released him. Do you have any insight into what's going on here? I actually don't know what the relationship of Turkey um, to this. But the, the one thing I have to say is there's no Haitian government. There is the core group and the U.S. making these decisions. The core group and the U.S. know everything about this assassination. You notice there hasn't been. There was supposed to be a report out on the assassination a few weeks ago. It never came. And the U.S. is not pressed. <laughs> to push for it, even though their, you know, their handpicked prime minister is implicated. The U.S. has all the evidence. The U.S. has people in, um, in custody, even though it's not their ju- jurisdiction. And so I, have, I would have to think that there must be some kind of agreement between, between Turkey and the U.S. to hold the man um, in prison. So that's what, that's what I have to say about it. And about the uh, assassination and the investigation is the fact that the U.S. controls the cards here. Do you see with the uh, recent election in Colombia on the horizon a change in Haitian politics? As we know, a lot of the assassins came out of Colombia and could very well have been trained by the United States in Colombia. So do you see a change in Colombia politics having an impact on a change in Haitian politics? Well, I hope so. But, you know, I'm not really um, I'm not thinking that that's going to happen. Because, you know, you, you think about it, Haiti is a complicated situation. And mm-hmm. most people don't know the details of what's happening in Haiti because they don't follow up. And so Haiti, it flares up in the news every time there's some kind of so-called violence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the way that, for example, China and Russia allowed the, the mandate of the UN to be renewed, even though they pushed back a little bit, tells you that they don't know the details. Because And, and then part of that, there is this there is this really terrible view of this black country as being incapable of running, this, run, uh, running itself. 
and 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 people don't know all the machinations machinations that are happening in the background. They don't know about the core group. They don't know how the U.S. runs Haiti. They don't think about the fact that the prime minister was handpicked and is supported. And so there might be, you know, less of a military engagement, especially with uh, with with the petrol with the uh, Pacto historical in Colombia, saying that the first thing, one of the first things that he's going to do, the president elect Petro, is get rid of the war on drugs, right? Which, you know, I, I don't know, you know, stop this war on drugs um, policy with the U.S. that, that, that Colombia's plan Colombia that they've had for so long. Mm-hmm. And I think in one way that might help, right, to getting the DEA out of, out, out of the situation. That might stop, you know, drugs and guns being imported into the country. So in that sense, but I think in terms of the actual leaders of these countries dealing with Haiti, I mean, Mexico wrote the renewal of the mandate. Right. For Haiti, mm-hmm. even though that's a leftist government. So I'm not sure when it comes to Haiti, if these governments and organizations will actually really know what's take the time to know what's going on and do right by Haiti. Is it is it that they don't know or is it that they're still afraid of retribution from the United States or a combination of the two? I think it's a combination of the two, because I don't think, you know, when the CARICOM says they're going to take a trip fact finding mission to Haiti. Um, you know, around this mandate and they supported the mandate. I'm like, you must know that the U.S. is is the core group runs Haiti and that the violence is because the core group allows it and that everything that's happening there is because the U.S. uh, 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 pushes for it. And so for them to go in and pretend or for them to go into Haiti and say, well, we we have to stop the violence in Haiti. We have to work with Haitian um, society to do that without really pointing to imperialism, without pointing to this long history of occupation. I don't even think they realize it's been an occupation since 2004. I do think a lot of these people still believe in the benevolence of the Westerners, right? The benevolence of the so-called rules-based international order. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and, and so they might have an idea, but I don't think they know enough to go in and, 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 and act in the correct way that would be beneficial to Haitians. Switching gears, Orinoco Tribune has a piece, at least one dead and 121 injured in fuel storage depot fire in Matanzas, Cuba. At least one dead, 17 firefighters are missing, 121 people have been injured in this huge fire that broke out last Friday in Matanzas in western Cuba, 60 miles east of Havana. The governments of Mexico and Venezuela have already sent expert teams to help the Cubans in the midst of this catastrophic fire. And it started in one fuel tank and now I think has spread to four. What's your understanding of this? And I don't know that the United States has really been involved in trying to help the Cubans fight this fire. Well, besides them sending thoughts and prayers, they haven't done anything, right? <laughs> they said, you know, the, pre- the the Cuban president, you know, listed the countries that have sent help, which is Russia, Venezuela, Mexico, uh, and, and so on, and said the U.S., uh, you know, uh, talked to them about technical, gave them some technical advice. But the U.S. has not sent aid. Yeah, here was, and- the, here was the advice. Put the fire out. <laughs> No, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly, right? So the U.S. has not done anything in terms of helping, and this is a fire that's going on, what, six days now, six or yeah. seven, you know, seven days, and it's, and the other, you know, there are eight of these um, huge oil, uh, uh, these places that hold this oil, and, in, you know, people are worried about the other four catching on fire. And so it's been nonstop work, by, especially by Venezuelan and Mexican firefighters, um, to help 
to help Cuba put that out. But, but you know, what people uh, also need to realize, one of the, you can't help Cuba. Most people, we cannot help Cuba because of the blockade, mm-hmm. the illegal and, and, and dehumanizing blockade where the U.S. is able to control who can send aid, who can give and receive money, who can do business with Cuba. And so all the critical um, um, help that Cuba needs actually is blocked from coming into the country. So the, the countries that are helping, like Venezuela, under U.S. sanctions, so then they can go ahead and help. And we're hoping that China can come in and do even more. Because if you're a foreign company and you dock on the port of Cuba, the U.S. will say, we'll not do business with you anymore. And so then that stops people from helping Cuba. So I can't even send money to the Cuban National Bank because the U.S. will block it, right? I can't send money to help people. And so one of the things that, you know, the U.S. does, and, and, and then we have to think about, like, the hypocrisy of the U.S. government because, you know, a couple of days after the fire broke out, what does the U.S. do? Send one extra billion dollars of aid to Ukraine, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So the U.S. could have sent aid if it wanted to, but it doesn't. And it's got these rabid right-wingers, you know, in Miami, like Mark Rubio, and then you have the the, the, the Texas guy, Cruz. Ted, Ted Cruz. Cruz and, 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 they're, and they're ranting against socialism. Um, they, want, they want Cuba to suffer. They want more people to die because they are still mad that Castro defeated, uh, that Castro, uh, that the revolution worked in 1959. They're still mad about that. And so, you know, the U.S. is the most hypocritical um, 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 declining empire um, that is full of hubris. And we shouldn't expect them to actually come out and be with the people, right? Unless they're holding up Nazis in the Ukraine. And if the United States, as we get out, if the United States were truly concerned about Cubans and not the politics of Cuba, it would be an incredibly powerful statement for the United States to step in and offer assistance so that Cubans would see America as a decent country instead of this element that continues to oppress the Cubans and allow these oil storage tanks to just continue to blaze. And one hopes that the wind doesn't shift and all that smoke starts blowing uh, to, to Mark Rubio's house. Into Marco Rubio's district. <laughs> Dr. Jamima Pierre, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. Look forward to having you back. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's an interesting piece in Consortium News entitled Zimbabwean Journalists Arrested Under Cybersecurity Law. The crackdown on journalists is escalating in the run-up to elections next year, according to Ignatius Banda. For insight, let's turn to my next guest. He's the U.S. correspondent to the Southern African Times, and he is the external relations officer of the Zimbabwe-Cuba Friendship Association and a U.S. correspondent to the Herald newspaper in Zimbabwe. Obi Egbuna, as always, Obi, welcome back. Thank you. 
So Banda opens, Zimbabwe's press freedom credentials suffered further criticism with the arrest of two journalists from a privately owned newspaper charged with transmitting, quote, false data messages, end quote. The pair were charged on August 3rd under the contentious criminal law codification and reform act as amended through the cyber and data protection act which became law in december of last year despite spirited opposition from press freedom lobbyists and civic society groups so obi what gets my attention here is a discussion of press freedom in a u.s outlet as though there is press freedom here Mm-hmm. And then also this reference to civic society groups makes me wonder who's funding these groups mm-hmm. and whose interests they're serving since history is replete with such groups being used by the U.S. to foment unrest. Your thoughts, Obi Igbuna. Okay, well, let's deal with That's an excellent leadoff, and it's always a pleasure to be on. Let's start with the fact. Let's start with the fact that Zimbabwe has more civil society groups than any nation in Africa, 400 to be exact. You wanted to know the funding, Brother Wilma. Let's get into that. 350 of them belong to something called the Crisis in Zimbabwe Coalition. They are financed by none other than George Soros, who is now also openly financing the movement for democratic change which was created in 1999 by the Westminster Foundation, the United States and British government, to be a regime change agent after watching what the movement for multi-party democracy was able to do in Zambia, unseating the great Kenneth Kaunda and UNIP. Let us go down, and 36 of those civil society groups are financed by um, the National Democratic Institute, And 14 of them are financed by the National Endowment for Democracy. So in this repressive climate, how are they allowed to function above ground? But the question is, why are civil society groups taking on the character as the extension of Western imperialist intelligence agencies? Dealing with the press question, let me just list the papers in Zimbabwe. That function above ground, Brother Willman listeners, the Herald, our newspaper, the Daily News, the Chronicle, Newsday, the Financial Gazette, Zimbabwe Independent, the Standard, Sunday Mail, Zimbabwe Telegraph, Zimbabwe Daily News, the Zimbabwean, the Mail, Zimbabwe Metro. I can, the longest I've been on the ground in Zimbabwe, I've lived in Zimbabwe for six months in 2006. And I swear on my beautiful three-year-old son that I have never seen police officers and military officers roam the streets of Zimbabwe and demand that the citizens of Zimbabwe purchase the Herald and the Herald exclusively. Also, the Zimbabwean in particular, that paper, is ran by a family, Brother Wilma and listeners, who were informants for the Rhodesian Special Security Forces during the revolution and liberate the armed struggle. Hmm. And in spite of that track record, they are allowed to function. The third thing I want to say real quickly, let, I named how many? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 newspapers that function above ground in Zimbabwe. 
Let's take a look at the governments in Africa that the United States and European Union has supported. How many newspapers existed in the Congo under Mobutu? How many newspapers existed in the Central African Republic under Bukasa? How many um, newspapers existed in Cote d'Ivoire slash Ivory Coast under Hufet Boyne? How many newspapers existed in Angola? During colonialism, mm-hmm. even if we don't look at neo-colonialists, how many newspapers existed when these countries were settler colonies, and how many newspapers exist under their most important, most embraced neo-colonies? Mm. And every time we bring this up, they can never answer the question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they act like Zimbabwe has no need to be on alert. A few years ago, your, you and Bill Clinton's favorite journalist, Brother Wilma, I'm just joking, I know he's not yours, <laughs> the, Nicholas Kristof mm. of the New York Times, he, he, he could have gotten press credentials because you have to go to a place called the Media and Information Commission. And you get your credentials. He did not present his credentials as a New York Times journalist, and he went into Zimbabwe and he was doing some investigative reporting. And he wrote an article when he got back to New York saying that he met a Zimbabwean and said that he longs for the days of Rhodesia. And I said, and people asked me that like I was, that was supposed to be embarrassing or that was supposed to be a reflection of the dominant sentiment. If he had a time machine and he went on the plantations, don't you think he could have found at least one of us that would have said they'd like to help catch Harriet Tubman and shut down the Underground Railroad? Absolutely. If he, if, he, if he went to Kenya during their armed struggle, he could have talked to someone that could have told you that they think it's better to be a member of the King's African Rifles than fight, and fight against the Mau Mau instead of be part of the Mau Mau. He could go to Palestine and find a Palestinian that works for the Mossad and would rather be a member of Israeli intelligence than be a member of the PLO or Hamas. So what was the point? Mm-hmm. So the whole, ever since... Operation to defend the Congo against a Western-led reinvasion, where Zimbabwe's military, Namibia's military, and Angola's military defended um, the territorial sovereignty of the DRC in 1999. Ever since the historic land reclamation program that began in 2000, ever since the push for an indigenization program, ever since the push for women's empowerment in Zimbabwe. Ever since the exposure that the sanctions are the biggest threat to progress in Zimbabwe, not political mismanagement by the ruling party, whether it was Robert Mugabe at the helm or Emerson Monongagwa at the helm, I challenge people to go to www.thomas.gov, look at every hearing that the Senate Foreign Relations Committee has had on Zimbabwe in the last 22 years, look at every hearing that Congress has called, and they keep talking about press freedom. But they never mention the amount of papers that are allowed to function above ground. And if you look at the things they say about their country, you how can you come and say with a straight face that there is persecution of the press in that country? And most people who go along with this, they have never read those newspapers. Mm-hmm. And most people 
in this country who even pay attention to Zimbabwe, they read those papers, but they don't even read the hell. And this makes me laugh because one time I came back from Zimbabwe, as a matter of fact, when I was appointed, the first became appointed, the U.S. correspondent to the Herald, I was harassed by customs. And this idiot officer in customs, as we call him in, um, in the hood I grew up in, Rennepigs, because that's all he was, he asked me, how can I write about Zimbabwe in the United States? My response was, at least I go there. The Voice of America reports on them every day and won't go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so how can you understand what I'm saying? So I understand exactly. Of, let, let me ask you this. I'm really disappointed in Consortium News running a piece like this. I'm happy they did it. I understand. They talk about the expansion of the repression acts, and they say if passed into law, this would see NGOs being required to furnish the government with itineraries and accounting that show the sources of their funding. Well, Mm. Zimbabwe isn't the only country that does that. The United States does that. Mm -hmm. So it's put in this piece as though that's some overreaching requirement Mm -hmm. when, again, Governments do this all the time. The United States government does this. This is not illegal. No. No, it is not. Okay. It, this, this is the thing. The great Tichona Jokonya, Ambassador Tichona Jokonya, Zimbabwe's first ambassador to Geneva, former, the former ambassador to the U.N., the, men, the former minister of the Ministry of Information and Publicity, now the Ministry of Media, Information, and Broadcasting Services. He said information is the first form of defense for us. Think of the quantum leap of a country that fought a 14-year armed struggle against the second most powerful colonial army ever assembled in Africa, understanding that information is important how they are perceived by the world or the Western world. If the State Department never put up an emergency broadcast years ago saying for U.S. citizens, non-essential travel to Zimbabwe should should be deferred due to political violence, they were lying. What political violence were they talking about? Now, this Zimbabwe geographically, for those of you who don't know the makeup of Southern Africa, what separates Zimbabwe and South Africa is the Limpopo River. You want to talk about Chicago to me? <laughs> 36 people a day get shot in Johannesburg. Mm-hmm. If you go to a hotel in Johannesburg, the five-star hotel, there are signs out front saying, please don't stand outside longer than 15 minutes. That doesn't happen in Zimbabwe. You know what Ambassador Jaconia told me is one of the biggest jokes in Zimbabwe? Nearly 20 years ago, the Australian cricket team came to play in Zimbabwe. And after the game, they didn't even want to go and shower. They didn't want to have a hotel. They said they want to go straight to South Africa. They don't want to spend the night in Zimbabwe because of what they heard. The next time they found those um, Australian cricket team members, guess where they were? Tied up nude in a sports bar in South Africa because they got robbed. You want- and and my point and my point I remember meeting some Jehovah Witnesses in Zimbabwe in two thousand and thirteen. Mm-hmm. Two thousand fourteen. Mm-hmm. And they told me it's the safest place they've ever been in Africa. So you have to look at this in the context of um 
a switch in strategy by imperialism. Okay. They tell us we are forbidden. Cuba is forbidden fruit travel lines. Is that correct? Correct. They tell you you're forbidden. They forbid you. They tell us we are forbidden, not allowed to travel to Cuba. Mm-hmm. But it is not in. But you shouldn't go to Zimbabwe because they know if they tell Africans that we can't go to Africa, we going by the million. <laughs> so they know they can't do that. But they have to plant this seed in your head that it isn't a place you shouldn't go. It's the most peaceful place I've ever been in my life. And I'm a product of the crack cocaine and PCP era when Washington, D.C. was the most dangerous place to live between 1987 and 1992. Murder capital of the world. There you go. So what I'm saying is to people who, who would listen to this, This should encourage you to go to Zimbabwe and see what is going on on the ground. Mm -hmm. They exaggerate because if they tell you that the land, when they first used to tell us, you remember this, when we first met each other Mm -hmm. over 20 years ago, weren't they telling people that only the government and their cronies had land? Correct. But if you would have gone there and you would have gone to Harare, you would have gone to Highlands, you would have gone to Mount Pleasant, you would have gone to Mbare, you would have gone to... Mondoro and Gezi, you would have gone to Kwekwe, you would have gone to Mashingo, and you would have saw the 350,000 families in a country where the average family comprises of six people. That's a hell of a lot of cronies. <laughs> if they would have told you about the violence and you went there and you didn't see any violence in a country where the police don't even carry guns for the most part, mm-hmm. you would have said, wait a minute, that doesn't correlate with what the Washington Post says, what BBC okay. says, right. what the Voice of America says. So this is a continuation of the same struggle. So not and to, and to quote Johnny Carson, former um, U.S. Assistant Secretary um, to Africa under Obama and Ambassador to Zimbabwe under Clinton, Zimbabwe is defeating the Western propaganda war thanks to stupid articles like the one you asked me to respond to today. Have a good one. Obi Egbuna, <laughs> thank you, my brother. Really appreciate it. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We're back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. People's Dispatch reports UN Security Council holds emergency meeting to discuss Gaza amid fragile truce. Special Coordinator for the Middle East Peace Process, Tor Wenisland, reported during the meeting that in three days, Israel had carried out 147 airstrikes, which killed 46 Palestinians, including 16 children, and injured more than 360 people. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a broadcaster, analyst, and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon, Laith Marouf. As always, Laith, welcome back. Thank you for having me once more. So on Monday, August 8th, the United Nations Security Council, they held an emergency meeting on the situation in Gaza amid uncertainty around the fate of the truce reached the previous day 
after three days of Israeli aggression. Laith, your thoughts, where are we with this? More meetings, more discussion, and Palestinians continue uh, to be murdered. Yeah, and I mean, the ceasefire is probably on its last uh, breaths here because uh, the uh, Palestinian uh, prisoner of war on hunger strike, uh, Khalil Awawda, uh, on his 181 days of hunger strike is now down to 35 kilograms. Uh, you know, that's, you know, 60, 70 pounds only left. Uh, his, his bones, he's lost his memory, he's not able to speak. This is what uh, his lawyer and uh, this medical specialist that visited today are saying. If uh, anything happens to Khalil Awawda and if he's not released to a, a special hospital to take care of his health, we will be seeing a return to hostilities. And, uh, uh, you know, as we see right now, the whole West Bank is in flames. Uh, almost uh, all the major cities in the West Bank are uh, daily confrontations with the Zionist uh, occupation forces. I mean, you know, to hear the United Nations uh, have this discussion at the Security Council, it's not uh, that helpful because we've had these discussions at the United Nations and the Security Council for 70 somewhat years and uh, nothing comes out of it. Even the best uh, comments that could come out of the Security Council of the United Nations are not leading to the uh, you know better situation for the Palestinians. Not only have there been airstrikes and other military acts of aggression, but there are also border controls as well as an Israeli blockade of medical supplies and fuel. So not only is Gaza being attacked militarily, it's also very slowly being strangled. I know this is the one of the longest sieges in human history of uh, any city. Uh, it's ongoing right now since uh, 2002, and uh, there is no end in sight except with Palestinian resistance. I would like to note also that one of the children that were injured in the uh, last attack by the Zionists on Gaza, she was evacuated with a few other uh, people that were injured in Gaza to uh, Palestinian hospitals in the West Bank. And uh, she's a nine-year-old, she just passed away. She's uh, now added to the numbers uh, of Palestinians, and this is how we're treated in the globe, uh, just as numbers. But um, you know, the the and another fa and a father who was injured and stayed in Gaza in one of the hospitals also passed away yesterday. So the numbers keep on going up uh, of those who were massacred at the hands of the uh, Zionist regime. The New Arab has a piece, Israel defense minister threatens to kill Islamic Jihad leader days after truce. He has threatened to kill the leader in Gaza despite a truce. Talk about the threat to kill Ziad al-Nakhala, the leader of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad in Gaza, saying that there are no guarantees this will not happen. Yes, and, and Ziad al-Nakhala is uh, actually uh, living in Lebanon. And so he is the political head of uh, uh, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. He is not living in Gaza. The military wing 
um, members are there. And we saw two of them being assassinated uh, during the last war. And this is why the Secretary General of Hezbollah, uh, Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah, in his speech uh, the day before yesterday, uh, referred to this threat uh, by the Israelis to assassinate Ziad Nakhala and said if one Palestinian uh, representative is harmed by Israel on Lebanese territory, it will be an all-out war. Uh, that Hezbollah will be protecting all the Palestinian leadership that is living on Lebanese territory. And this is the same for Iran and or Syria. If an assassination like this happens on those territories, expect uh, a response that uh, could drag us into a regional war. And, you know, a reminder that we're all waiting right now till the end of this month to see if the Zionists uh, cease uh, their activities and attempt to loot the uh, Lebanese gas in the disputed territory, uh, maritime territories, and uh, for the international um, corporations that signed contracts with Lebanon years ago to start digging and pulling out the gas from uh, the non-disputed uh, maritime territories. So by the end of the month, if none of that happens, uh, you know, let alone an assassination like this by the Zionists on Lebanese territory, will see us at war. Quote, all terrorist organization leaders should be concerned. Ziad al-Nakhala stands at the head of a terrorist organization, and there are no guarantees for his life no matter where he is. This is from Benny Gantz. I think he said that Tuesday. Referring to Ziad al-Nakala as the head of a terrorist organization, if I understand international law correctly, basically all bets are off in terms of the Palestinian response to the repression, oppression, and genocide being inflicted upon them by the Zionist state of Israel. So if I understand it, Palestinians can, under international law, use any means necessary to repel the aggression. So labeling him the head of a terrorist organization is inaccurate. Yes, and, uh, you know, the Geneva Convention uh, written after World War II, after the Holocaust, uh, it grants the full rights for occupied peoples to resist their occupiers uh, in any way they wish and uh, deem necessary. And that includes uh, armed resistance. Imagine if we said the uh, Jewish-Polish uh, Warsaw couldn't resist the Nazis because that would be terrorism. Mm -hmm. And so we live in a world where Everything has been flipped upside down. Uh, you know, the the, <laughs> the sky is red and uh, the the earth is blue. Uh, you know, you have to basically lie to yourself and ignore all of human history to label Palestinian resistance as terrorism. In fact, I think uh, you know what the Zionists have done over the last few decades. And with them, the Americans, in terms of the their attacks on uh, sovereignty of peoples, uh, have uh, basically emptied international law and the Geneva Convention of any meaning 
uh, at all. And now we're back in a situation where, in reality, we're living the moments before World War One. The New Arab has a piece, uh, Islamic State leader Abu Salam al-Iraqi blows himself up in Syria. An Islamic State leader in northern Syria blew himself up on Tuesday, killing and wounding others in the process. This is a name that I was not familiar with. Can you tell me who uh, Abu Salem al-Iraqi was and why he chose to blow himself up in Syria in the manner in which he did? Yes, uh, the Syrian government uh, conducted a special operation with their uh, special forces, uh, you know, uh, chasing uh, this guy, Abu Salam al-Iraqi, uh, down in uh, Dara'a, in the southern province on the border with Jordan, uh, to the town of Adwan. And, uh, you know, the, the, they pinned him down in a house, uh, and in this firefight, the guy decided to blow himself up uh, rather than, uh, you know, be caught. And, uh, of course, uh, in, in this explosion, uh, a few civilians in the uh, adjacent houses got uh, injured. Now, of course, we you're not going to hear much about this in the Western media because it's not uh, an operation that was conducted by the Americans. Uh, but also, this shows you how important the Dara province is on the border with Jordan and how much the Jordanian uh, special uh, intelligence forces and the Americans are still continuing to uh, try to affect uh, the southern regions of Syria through smuggling these uh, terrorists uh, that have been trained by the CIA and the Saudis to uh, destabilize Syria. This is a very important region because without uh, the... Uh, you know, border crossings with Jordan, Syria cannot export much uh, to the world. So who was he? Was he fighting for ISIS? What was his background and, and basically what was his mission, if you have any insight? Yeah, I mean, from his uh, nom de guerre, uh, al-Iraqi, means he is an Iraqi citizen. Um, we don't have much more information about him, but clearly he had uh, replaced the last ISIS uh, leader that, uh, quote-unquote, was assassinated by the uh, United States with a drone hit on the Idlib province, another area that is under the influence of the United States through America, uh, Turkish occupation. And so for that to happen, um, the switch from the northern front, it seems like because Turkey is trying to wind down its operations in Syria through uh, an extending uh, a hand. We've heard uh, that uh, Erdogan wants to make a phone call with Assad. We haven't set, heard yet if President Assad accepted uh, that offer. Uh, and as we see, uh, Russia and Iran continue to try to sway Turkey out of its operations in uh, Syria. What well, we see then that uh, now the Americans and their other uh, vessels in the area are going to try to probably increase pressure on Syria from the south uh, since the pressure in the north is being lifted. So this is what's the most significant thing for me is why this person was in Dara and, and the fact that he's Iraqi and he came through Jordan. So that shows complicity in terms of Jordan operating with the United States. I think you said this just a few minutes earlier. This demonstrates a complicity with King Hussein in Jordan and allowing the United States to use Jordan as a transit area? 
Yes, I mean, Jordan, you know, and the Jordanian uh, intelligence have been probably the most important asset within this uh, structure of moving around uh, uh, Wahhabi contracts around the world. The Saudis train them and fund them, uh, and the uh, Jordanians move them around uh, at ease because of how much uh, liberal image Jordan has. Laith Marouf, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate that analysis, and uh, we look forward to having you back. You have a great evening. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, and there's more on the other side. Stay tuned. Back in, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's an interesting piece at 1945.com entitled Smart Bombs, Military Defense, National Security, and More. China's military was built to defeat America in a Taiwan war. For insight into this, let's turn to my next guest. He's a peace activist, writer, and teacher, K.J. No. As always, K.J., welcome back. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. So the piece opens, Taipei on Saturday warned that significant Chinese military drills in the seas around Taiwan and in the air over the island represented a simulation of an attack. On Monday, China announced that it was extending the maneuvers with the semi-official communist mouthpiece Global Times claiming the expanded drills will not stop and are expected to become routine until reunification. It is time for a blunt, stone-cold, sober reality check for Washington, continuing to base U.S.-China policies on the arrogant assumption that we can simply impose our will on Beijing while ignoring realities on the ground will unnecessarily and avoidably raise the risk of war in the Taiwan Straits area. Your thoughts, K.J. No. Yes, it's absolutely correct. First, the point that China's military was built to defeat the United States in a war over Taiwan. The Chinese military is, is, a, is not built for expansion, but it is built uh, to take back Taiwan. And that is because in 1996, during the third Taiwan Strait uh, crisis, uh, the U.S. essentially threatened and uh, gunboated China into submission. And since then, the Chinese have been building their forces. They have incredible military capacity right now, not the least of which is the Dongfeng-26 and the Dongfeng-21, which are uh, ship-killer missiles. And essentially, if the U.S. went to war, uh, it's likely that every ship within a thousand miles of China would be sunk. And, you know, this is confirmed by RAND, by the Pentagon, by CSIS, by every think tank who is serious about doing their analysis. Uh, the fact that the United States is continuing to provoke China, that it, it has threatened to do a, a, a straight crossing within a few weeks, right after it declared the end of the one China policy by allowing Nancy Pelosi to go there on an official visit, uh, makes it very, very clear that the escalation will continue. And therefore, uh, uh, I think that, you know, we really have to consider that uh, the risk of war 
is is very, very real. Another interesting element in this piece talks about if China were going to move on Taiwan, that it would not do it in the current military landscape or military construct, that China's a little smarter than that, and that they would wait this out, basically, wait until they saw the advantage to be in their favor. Yes, absolutely. I mean, they are not in a great hurry. They have two massive advantages. One is distance, which means that logistically they can slap down anything uh, that comes their way. They're 90 miles away from Taiwan Island. The U.S. is 7,000 miles away. Uh, and then the other advantage they have is really the resolve of their country, not simply the resolve of the leadership, but the resolve of the entire country. In fact, it is the Chinese people that were so sorely disappointed uh, that the leadership did not engage in kinetic action over Nancy Pelosi's ill-advised visit. But the, you're absolutely correct. They will act and move on their time under the conditions that they feel are the most uh, most advantageous for them. And I would, uh, I would also state that this current spate of exercises is literally, you know, a drill for uh, blockade uh, of Taiwan Island. And also, I would assume that the Chinese are working tremendously on stealth capacities, as they did in 1950 during the Korean War, when they uh, surprised the United States with hundreds of thousands of troops that the U.S. didn't even see coming. Yeah, I think it's that Afghan proverb, you have the watches, we have the time, which is something that the United States seems to not really have a complete grasp of and, and what that means from a tactical perspective. The South China Morning Post has a piece, China's Belt and Road Lending Under More Scrutiny After IMF Tightens Debt Limits. The new transparency demands from global financial institutions aimed at preventing sovereign debt distress are starting to have an impact on China-backed infrastructure projects under the Belt and Road Initiative. Talk about that, because I find that analysis to be somewhat questionable. I think it's very, very questionable. I mean, what it boils down to is that the IMF, which has always been an instrument of Western imperialism, mm -hmm. you know, all the Leavenworth institutions are, is that they have decided to take upon themselves to interfere with the Belt and Road. Uh, initiative, which is, you know, which is the alternative to this kind of extractive rentier um, bullying that the IMF and the World Bank has has been doing for almost 70 years. So I, I, I would take this with a, a grain of salt. Uh, remember, for example, in Sri Lanka and also in Africa, China holds a very, very small amount of the debt of these countries. Uh, and, uh, you know, anything that China is offering is actually to these countries' advantage, whereas the IMF and the foreign uh, debt, uh, uh, private debt, which is, on, which, which is being held over these countries' heads, you know, is really what is uh, destroying them and forcing them into penury, as it has, uh, uh, for example, uh, over the past 
decades, like from 1960, from 1960 onwards, $162 trillion, $162 trillion was sucked out of the third world and into Western coffers. And so uh, the IMF does not want to see its little racket disrupted and it wants to see if it can, uh, you know, destroy or kneecap the competition, which is clearly a much better deal, i.e. the Belt and Road. I find this interesting. This is from the South China Morning Post piece. China is the largest single creditor to developing nations after the World Bank. 68% of the world's poorest nations will pay $52.8 billion to service debt, and more than a quarter of that will go to China. Despite its outsized role in development finance, China has drawn criticism especially from the U.S., for not offering enough transparency. So really what this is saying to me is that the United States, through the World Bank and the IMF, they're getting aggravated because China is cutting into their business. And what they don't say here, but what I know is, and to your point, is that the lending rate that China uses is much more advantageous to the countries borrowing the money, which is why now these smaller nations are going to China because it's a much more mutually beneficial relationship than the predator aspect that the United States and the World Bank and the IMF are engaged in. Yes, it's absolutely correct. These loans are non-predatory, which is why these smaller countries are going for them. And, you know, it's very simple. I mean, if the U.S. wanted to compete, if the World Bank wanted to compete, it could just offer them better conditions. But it's not doing that. And rather than that, it's trying to throw out these, you know, foolish uh, slogans, quote unquote, transparency. Well, when a country, you know, takes on a loan, it decides what it wants to disclose and not disclose. That's up to them. It's their choice. China offers them positive rates. They offer them for very, very productive investments, largely infrastructure like water, electricity, transportation, roads. Uh, and, uh, and they also don't impose these onerous and uh, interfering measures on a country's uh, internal politics. And this is why they're successful. And as I said before, the U.S. and the IMF as, uh, and the World Bank as instruments of U.S. imperialism would like nothing better uh, than to destroy uh, an alternative system that allows countries to escape from this predatory relationship. In fact, one of the things that you find as we now see a, a turnover in the global south with their elections, you hear the analysis of many of these countries have an incredible debt burden that they owe to the World Bank, they owe to the IMF, and that as a way of working through that debt burden, the United States wants to impose neoliberal policies. And we saw that not only in the global south, we saw it in Greece, we saw it in Italy, overwhelming debt from the World Bank, from the IMF, and the solution is privatization, neoliberal policies, selling off public assets to private interests. Absolutely. I mean, think of all the, you know, old age pensioners, you know, who having worked their whole lives in Portugal, Italy and uh, Portugal and Greece, mm -hmm. you know, suddenly found their retirement cut to half. And, you know, they saw themselves committing suicide. I mean, this is what that 
uh, IMF uh, austerity and privatization, uh, you know, restructuring looks like. I think, you know, back to South Korea in 1997, South Korea had a minor liquidity crisis, $50 billion is nothing. It's like, you know, lacking $2 on your mortgage or something. And the IMF came in, pulled it over the table. Next thing you know, South Korea had lost half of its GDP. You know, hundreds of thousands were out of work. Most of its corporations were forced to sell themselves for pennies on the dollar. And there's a phenomenon in Korea that we used to call the IMF of orphans. These were kids who the parents would pick off, pick up, middle-class kids who the parents would pick up from daycare. And instead of driving them to, uh, you know, their piano lessons, they would drop them off uh, at uh, at a orphanage, mm. you know, with some toys. Mm-hmm. And then the parents would go home and commit suicide. Well, uh that's neoliberalism for you. KJ, no, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. Look forward to having you back. Always a pleasure. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's a great piece in Black Agenda Report entitled, For the American Empire, Hypocrisy and War Go Hand in Hand. American exceptionalist hypocrisy was on full display during Nancy Pelosi's provocative trip to Taiwan. For further insight into this, let's turn to my next guest. He's an author, a contributor to Black Agenda Report, and the author of this piece, Danny Haifong. As always, Danny, welcome back. Thanks for having me back, Wilmer. So you write, while Pelosi entered and left Taiwan unscathed, her stunt placed already fragile U.S.-China relations in their worst condition yet. As expected, China took decisive measures in response to the U.S.'s latest and perhaps most provocative violation of the one-China policy to date. Uh, Danny, I want you to elaborate on that, but one of the things that I find very interesting as you reference the one-China policy is Joe Biden said, oh, we still adhere to the one-China policy. Blinken, we still adhere to the one-China policy, Pelosi. But everything they do is in direct violation and provocation of that said policy. Help me out here, Danny. I don't get it. I need a, I need a mind greater than mine like yours. Help me out. I don't get it. Well, China has been saying now for uh, weeks upon weeks now, now entering the months, that what the United States has been doing is preaching but not practicing. So they preach, the Biden administration, the Democrats, uh, the, the uh, foreign policy establishment will preach that they do follow the one-China policy, that there is no breach of this. They'll go so far as to say, like National Security uh, Council spokesperson John Kirby said, that it's China changing the status quo. That's where the hypocrisy comes in. But it really, that's all just rhetoric. It's all political theater because uh, we're in the midst of a midterm election coming up. 
the United States' political legitimacy is really at an all-time low with all of these domestic ills, economic ills, and just the lack, uh, declining popularity of people like Pelosi and Biden, just uh, completely uh, uh, bamboozling the administration about what it should do. And violations of the One China policy are part of a political strategy, in my opinion. They're part of, one, trying to... Uh, engage aggressively with China and to satisfy the military-industrial complex, satisfy those forces in the foreign policy establishment that see China as the biggest threat to the United States' continued hegemony, and then also uh, a political strategy along with that military strategy in trying to garner support from the GOP, whether it's voters or whether it's from the establishment figures that the Democratic Party has been courting all along. Uh, those who defended Nancy Pelosi uh, over this trip have been people like Mike Pompeo, Kevin McCarthy, uh, Marco Rubio, those forces in the GOP, which uh, the Democrats have been so desperate to try to unite with in order to solidify some kind of political base. It doesn't work. It hasn't worked. And it's not going to work in the midterm elections. But it's part of what the ruling class thinks is available. Elaborate on that because, you know, Mike Pompeo was saying, hey, Nancy, I want a seat on the plane. Yeah. Okay. So you're saying that the right wing Democrats like Pelosi are trying to align themselves with warmongers like Pompeo. And then you said, but that hasn't worked. Explain what you mean by that. What's the objective? Right. What are they trying to solidify? Well, the entire Democratic Party establishment since 2016 has been all about how do we consolidate the political establishment in a way that, one, prevents a Trump-like scenario happening again, and two, neutralizes any kind of progressive and leftist political base in the United States. And that's what the Democratic Party is all about. That's what they did in 2016, what uh, the late Glenn Ford called the big tent strategy, mm -hmm. attempting to gather all of the national security spooks, the the, those who align with the Republicans who are in the Republican Party establishment, and merge them with Wall Street, merge them with the DNC in order to wage this kind of crusade to to, uh, save the American empire from people like Trump and people like us who, who <laughs> want to see peace, who want to see an end to endless war, and who want these domestic ills that uh, are so afflicting the Democratic Party's legitimacy as well as just causing immense suffering for working people want those addressed. And that's what the Democratic Party is seeking to neutralize. That's what they're really most interested in, how to build a political tent of uh, as much of the ruling class as possible to uh, uh, lead to some kind of political success. And it didn't work in 2016. I feel like 2020 was, a, was lucky for Joe Biden in that Donald Trump kind of shot himself in the foot many times right before the election with the COVID crisis and, and with the stimulus package delaying that, the second stimulus package. So uh, Joe Biden got lucky, and the Democrats are not going to be so lucky this time, given just how uh, unpopular and uh, just how much heat they've taken for uh, really what's transpired in the United States. And so it, there's no better time than to scapegoat and to build up 
this kind of warlike atmosphere as an attempt to divert people's attention to a so-called quote-unquote foreign adversary. This isn't a part of your piece, but based on what you've just said, so you don't think that all of this chatter about Biden's approval ratings now all of a sudden going over 40 percent and they're talking about Biden's legislative agenda being successful with the passage of these uh, latest couple of bills and the assassination of Zawahiri and all of that. Oh, and of course, the reaction to the Supreme Court's decision on Roe. You don't think that those things together are going to give momentum to the Democrats that are going to help them tremendously in the midterms? I mean, certainly it could help. Do I think that it will move the needle in a way that changes the calculus? Not necessarily. I I do think that there will be uh, more and more with the Inflation Reduction Act and all of these kind of uh, signals that the Biden administration is doing its best to ameliorate things. Certainly there will be more of that to come. But the economic situation, the inflation crisis, the fact that a recession could be on its way is indeed uh, going to be troublesome, I think, to to Joe Biden uh, in 2024. But in the midterms, you know, I think a lot of people's dissatisfaction has kind of been set into stone and it would take a lot for that to change and no amount of scaremongering, fearmongering and and really be belligerence toward China is, is going to help that. Getting back to your piece now, you write, as expected, China took decisive measures in response to the U.S.'s largest and perhaps most provocative violation of the one China policy. Before Pelosi went to Taiwan, there were those that were saying and many thought that if she flew through Chinese airspace, that they would shoot her plane out of the sky. She, of course, went east to go west and went north to go south to avoid going through Chinese airspace. But there were those that were saying, you see, she went, she said she was going to go, she stood strong, and God bless Nancy Pelosi. So they see this as a victory. Talk about the decisive measures that China actually took, because I think that what they demonstrated was even— more significant than what they could have done if they had shot her plane out of the sky. Hopefully that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, it would have been kind of taking the bait if the People's Mm -hmm. Liberation Army made the decision to uh, confront Nancy Pelosi in the air, whether that's through shooting the plane down, whether through what is also Or forcing it down, forcing her to land or whatever. Yeah, Yeah. which can be equally dangerous, right, because of the, you know, fuel limitations of the kind of aircraft that she was in, as well as you never know what military installation, you know, there was a increase in militarization by the United States leading up to and in escorting her to Taiwan. So uh, an accident, quote unquote, could have easily happened. So the People's Liberation Army just, of course, decided not to do that. That was probably last, if not, not even on the agenda. What they did do and what China has done overall has been a series of things. The two biggest were military drills, which are set to continue, actually, the the People's Liberation Army and China's foreign ministry said today that these military drills are going to happen and they're going to be more frequent and there are going to be further patrols of the, of the straits and of the area surrounding Taiwan. And so for 72 hours, beginning on August 4th, the People's Liberation Army conducted probably the most serious and most comprehensive drills 
around the island, breaking the so-called air defense identification zone, not record, recognized by international law, uh, which was created by the United States and is so-called a claim of Taiwan airspace. Uh, really a relic of World War II and the old warmongering of the United mm-hmm. States pre-One China policy, pre-Joint Communique. But China broke that. And they also essentially surrounded the island on all sides and showed through these drills that both economically and militarily, uh, any kind of action by those forces in Taiwan collaborating with the United States and the United States as well would lead to a pretty swift military response that would be as Colonel Douglas McGregor, as Hannah Tucker Carlson's show, as many uh, in the Rand Corporation and other uh, military uh, apparatchiks have said, it would lead to a pretty decisive defeat for the United States. So China did that on the one hand, and on the other, began the process of breaking ties with the United States in places that really upped the risk for the United States. So a lot of Uh, communication around defense coordination and even climate change, which the United States has been facilitating for many years now, sanctioning, uh, for example, Joe Biden's sanctioning of China's polysilicone industry in Xinjiang. Uh, China made a huge step by saying, no, we're not going to talk to you about climate change anymore because you're not a serious partner and you need to to know there are consequences to uh, your Uh, belligerence and aggression around Taiwan. So these measures show that China does have cards. The Western (laughs) media loves to say China has no cards. They don't have any. China has plenty of cards. These are actually minor moves that are significant in the sense that they isolate the United States, increase the risk of the United States doing something incredibly dumb, and also show that China can respond to that in a way that could both preserve uh, 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 China's territorial integrity and also avoid any kind of major conflict. And I think that's what China is really most interested in, that if the worst is to come, then uh, all preparations need to be made to make sure that a swift outcome is possible. And today, China came out with a white paper uh, on um, reunification and reiterated the position, which has not changed, Mm -hmm. that peaceful reunification is the objective and that last resort is uh, uh, force, right, is the use of force in order to achieve this. But also reiterating that this will become an inevitability if the United States or any other foreign uh, power or aggressor is to, uh, you know, is to spark it, is to create the conditions for such a thing to occur. And so that's uh, that's where China stands, but I think these I think they this these responses have already had an impact. A lot of bluster came out of the West, right? Germany and I think the UK all said we're going to go to the Taiwan. A lot of that has quieted down, and uh, the United States has really attempted to shift focus away from what just happened because I think that there is an acknowledgement that any further escalations would be disastrous, especially coming up in a very sensitive political moment for for the United States. I think it's also important for people looking at this to understand that a lot of the rhetoric coming from the United States is really for domestic consumption because nobody else in the world believes half of what the United States says and or knows that the United States can't do it even if they tried to. Exactly. Exactly. And and that's, that's, I think, 
the hypocrisy is really becoming very apparent because the lies of the American empire are so far flung from any kind of reality. So mm-hmm. when lies become hard to match up with the reality, when the United States is on the decline in so many key areas, when mm-hmm. political legitimacy is uh, in, in really tough shape, then that makes it much more difficult to actually move forward on a, a very serious objective like waging war on China, something that would have planetary implications that uh, none of us want to see transpire, at least none of us who have any kind of conscience for mm-hmm. peace. Danny Haifong, as always, man, great talking to you. Really appreciate you giving us time today, and uh, I look forward to having you back. Thanks so much. Same here. Folks, you've been listening to the Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing my voice into your space, and I hope you were informed and enlightened, and I look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. I'm out. (laughs) 